We're in Psalm 3. Psalm 3. And I want to just read the entire thing. It's only eight verses, so it won't take us long to read it. But uh, these psalms just lend them. There'll be some nights where we have a longer psalm. We won't, we won't read the entire thing at one time. Uh, but when you can, it just is really neat to just hear the psalm read all at one time. Psalm chapter 3 begins with the, the small letters there, the title, A Psalm of David, When He Fled from Absalom, His Son. We'll talk a lot about that in a few moments. O Lord, how many are my foes. Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, There is no salvation for him in God. Selah. Now this is the first time we see the word Selah used. It's used about 70, 71 times in the book of Psalms and three times in Habakkuk. Uh, you see this designation Selah. And there's debate among scholars what Selah means. Uh, some people believe it's a, a sort of a musical uh, way of saying pause, reflect, you know, meditate on what you've just read or just said or just sung. Uh, some people take it down to the root uh, of, of that word, the ancient root of that word, and think it means something like uh, lift up or raise your voice. And so it could mean something like, hey, sing louder. That's, so there's debate. Does it mean pause and reflect? Does it mean sing louder? We don't know. Uh, we'll let the Hebrew scholars battle that one out, and when we get to heaven, Jesus will tell us. Okay, uh, But it is a, a word that designates something important has just been said. So... Uh, O Lord, how many are my foes? Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, there's no salvation for him in God's Selah. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. I cried aloud to the Lord, and he answered me from his holy hill, Selah. Now, some of you may be saying, this sounds sort of familiar. Well, uh, our choir sings this song called Thou, O Lord. It comes straight from Psalm 3. It's one of our favorites. Uh, people get it fired up when they sing that song. And so if, you, if some of these words sound familiar, it's probably because you've heard the choir sing these words. Verse 5, I lay down and slept. I woke again for the Lord sustained me. Love that verse. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God, for you strike all my enemies on the cheek. You break the teeth of the wicked. Salvation, I love this, salvation belongs to the Lord, your blessing be on your people, Selah. Wonderful, wonderful psalm. If you look at your notes, you can tell I got a little carried away. I just kept digging and digging. If they've looked, we got a lot of notes, we do, but we're going to go fast tonight. But I just kept digging and digging and digging. There's so much here in this third psalm, so we're going to have a great time just digging in. But before we do that, I want to just remind you of what the psalms are all about. This book of psalms, 150 chapters, they are basically a... Uh, the Psalms are basically a collection of, of hymns that were sung by God's people. And Kendall Easley uh, gives a great summary of what the Psalms are about. God, the true and glorious King, is worthy of all praise and prayer, thanksgiving and confidence, whatever the occasion in personal or community life. That's kind of an overall summary of what the Psalms are about. And we've made it to Psalm 3. And what I want to do is I want to walk you through... The four elements of this psalm, to, to understand what's being said here, to understand what it means. And then I want to spend some time, what I call closing thoughts, I want to spend some time talking about what it means to us and, and thinking through some implications of this psalm and how this psalm speaks into our lives. So let's begin by looking at the four elements in understanding this psalm. Number one, let's talk about the context of the psalm. The context of the psalm. This is the first psalm with a title, and it says there, 
a psalm of David when he fled from Absalom his son. So we immediately know the context in which this psalm was written. And this refers us back to a story found in 2 Samuel chapter 15. So just turn there with me very quickly, 2 Samuel 15. We're not going to read the four chapters that deal with this story. But look in 2 Samuel 15. It gives us sort of a a feel for what was happening, what David was going through, what he was experiencing. 2 Samuel chapter 15, verse 1. Let me kind of set up the context for you a little bit before we read in chapter 15. Absalom was David's son. Uh, he was estranged from David for, a, uh, for years uh, because he had killed another one of David's sons because the, the other son had, uh, had sexually assaulted his half-sister. And so Absalom, in revenge... For that assault kills the the son of David, and uh, he is, he's estranged from David. He comes back into town through some uh, conversation with Joab, one of David's trusted men, and he's back in Jerusalem. And it says there in verse one: After this, Absalom got himself a chariot and horses, and fifty men to run before him. And so he and David had reconciled. They they met together and 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 they reconciled. But it says in verse 2, Absalom used to rise early and stand beside the way of the gate. And when any man had a dispute to come before the king for judgment, Absalom would call to him and say, From what city are you? And when he said, Your servant is of such and such a tribe in Israel, Absalom would say to him, See, your claims are good and right, but there is no man designated by the king to hear you. Then Absalom would say, Oh, that I were judge in the land, that every man with a dispute or cause might come to me, and I would give him justice. And so Absalom's basically saying this to everyone that comes into Jerusalem with a problem. He says, listen, the king's too busy. He can't handle your problems. But if, if I had the authority, I would love to help you deal with your problems. I would love to help you walk through your issue. And it says in verse 5, whenever a man came near to pay homage to him, he would put out his hand, take hold of him, and kiss him. Thus Absalom did to all of Israel who came to the king for judgment. And here's the key phrase. So Absalom stole the hearts of the men of Israel. That's what was happening. Absalom stole the hearts of the men of Israel in a very underhanded way. And when the time was right, Absalom got his followers together and uh, proceeded to try to take over the kingdom from his dad, King David. Well, David gets wind of this uh, rebellion, and he knows he's in trouble because Absalom had a lot of supporters. And so Ab- David, in chapter 15, has to leave town. He has to leave Jerusalem uh, and go into hiding for a time until he could get his forces together and they could eventually fight the forces of Absalom. And so that's the context here. He's fleeing from Absalom. He knows that if Absalom comes into town and David's still there, that Absalom would kill his dad. And kill his loyal followers. So David has to leave town. So that's what Psalm 3 is all about. It's not just a, a nice little poem. David was writing with great angst in his life. He was writing under much distress. Look back at what it says in, in verse 3. I'm sorry, chapter 3 of, of Psalms. Notice the, the language that he uses. He says, let me get there. He says, how many are my foes? Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul. So David knew that Absalom had a great following. And so the context of this psalm is trouble. So if you ever find yourself in trouble, this psalm's for you. 
You can relate because David is definitely dealing with trouble. You ever had trouble in your life? Right? We all do. Well, if you ever had trouble, you can relate. David's been in a tough spot before. If you ever had family trouble, this is family trouble, right? This psalm's for you. You ever feel like your family is fractured and splintered and falling apart and there's, there are issues that just can't be reconciled? This psalm is for you. David knew what it was like to live in the midst of family dysfunction. And that was the context in which this psalm was written. So, Absalom stole the hearts of the people, led a rebellion against David. David had to leave town. He had to leave Jerusalem uh, with his loyal followers and go into the wilderness. That's the context of the psalm. Now, here's the second element, the complaint of David. The complaint of David. Found there in verses 1 and 2. O Lord, how many are my foes? Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, there's no salvation, no help, no hope. For him in God, Selah. And so David not only is running for his life, other people are looking at the situation saying, David is done for. There's no way he can make it out of this mess. And he's complaining about the the number of enemies that had risen up against him, the complaint of David. But third, I want you to see not just the context of the psalm and the complaint of David, I want you to see the confidence of David. The confidence of David. Because in verse 3, something dramatically shifts. Verses 1 and 2, many are rising against me, many foes, many are saying there's no salvation for him in God. But then in verse 3, look how things change drastically. He says, but you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory, and the lifter of my head. So even though David is surrounded by trouble... He is dealing with family dysfunction. David has great confidence in God. We can learn something from that, right? That when we find ourselves in trouble, when we find ourselves going through a difficult time, there are some things about God that we can hold on to. We can have confidence in God. Or let me say it like this, and this is in your notes. David quickly takes his eyes off of his circumstances and places them on God. Now that's critical. He quickly takes his eyes off of his circumstances and places them on God. I I love these quotes, and a couple of them are longer, but they're so good. Listen to what J.M. Boyce writes. When a believer gazes too long at his enemies, the force arrayed against him seems to grow in, in size until it appears to be overwhelming. But when he turns his thoughts to God, God is seen in his true great stature, and the enemies shrink to manageable proportions. I like that. And he goes on to use as an example the spies that go into the promised land to spy it out uh, before God uh, led them into the promised land. Remember the 12 spies? 10 came back with a bad report. 2 came back with a good report. They saw the same thing. They both, they all saw, both sides saw giants in the land, but one, all they could think about was the giants. The two uh, spies, Joshua and Caleb, that said, let's go take the promised land. Instead of thinking about the giants, they were thinking about their great God. They had a very different response because one was looking at circumstances, one was looking at God. And so you and I have got to learn that when we find ourselves in difficulty, don't don't get caught up in just gazing at your circumstances. Make sure you turn to look at God. Look at this next quote from P.C. Craigie. He writes, As the psalmist moves his eyes from the multitude of enemies to God, the tone of the psalm changes abruptly. The principle that is involved in this change of tone is one which is well established in the biblical literature. If one gazes too long upon the enemy and his might, the enemy grows in the mind's eye to gigantic proportions, 
and its citadels reach up to the skies. The hypnotic power of the enemy is broken when one turns one's gaze toward God, who is able to fight and grant victory. And so there's something, something tangible that happens when you turn from your circumstances, from your trouble, and begin to look at God. I heard one pastor say it like this. Instead of telling God how big your problems are, start telling your problems how big your God is. You see the shift there? It's a subtle shift, but it's a real shift. That's what's happening in verse 3. David's saying, I'm surrounded by trouble, really big trouble, really dramatic trouble, but you, O Lord, are a shield about me. He quickly, abruptly looks to God. And we've got to learn to do that. We've got to learn to, to shift our focus to God when we find ourselves in difficult times. And so David looks to God, and then David exhibits great confidence in the character of God. Great confidence in the character of God. Several, there are several thoughts about God that surface in this text uh, from David. First of all, David wants us to understand that God is a protector. God is a protector. Look what it says there in verse 3. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me. Now, you don't have to be a biblical scholar to understand that, right? A shield is a defensive uh, implement that warriors use to... Defend them against the attack of the enemy. And David is saying, God, you are my shield. You protect me from the advances, from the attacks of the enemy. So he wanted uh, his hearers to understand that God is a protector. I love how Spurgeon says it. He writes, Oh, what a shield is God for his people. He wards off the fiery darts of Satan from beneath and the storms of trials from above while at the same instant he speaks peace to the tempest within the breast. So Spurgeon is saying that God is a shield for his people against any attack that comes their direction. David understood that he had very real enemies that really wanted to kill him. He's saying, God, you are a shield about me. I can trust in your protection. Listen to me. If you are a child of God, you can trust God's protection for your life. He's always watching over you. Let me say it like this. Nothing can touch your life unless God allows it. Amen? Nothing. And if God allows it, guess what? He has a purpose behind it that's for your ultimate good. I mean, you can't lose, can you? Nothing can touch your life unless God allows it. Why? Because he's a shield. And he'll keep the things away from you that he wants to keep away from you that can harm you. And he'll let some things in, but he lets the things in that are for your ultimate good. You can't lose. God is your shield. Nothing can touch your life unless God allows it. I came across this quote from Lottie Moon recently. It's one of my favorite Lottie Moon quotes now. She wrote, I have a firm conviction. Now think about this. I have a firm conviction that I'm immortal until my work is done. Think about that. You're not going anywhere until God's done with your life. Amen? No matter what anybody says, you're not going anywhere. You are immortal. Nothing or no one can touch your life until your work is done. And so we can have confidence in the protecting power of God. He is our shield. Now, Lottie Moon walked through some dangerous territory. You know, she was a four-foot lady in... Uh, late 19th century China, which was going through many wars and conflicts, and she would ri- walk in the middle of two rival armies headed to tell people about Jesus. This little four-foot lady. 
So she knew what it was like to be threatened, but she had this firm conviction, nothing can touch my life till my work on earth is done. So I can walk with confidence. God is my shield. So, so David understands God is a protector, and he had that confidence. Secondly, David believed that God would turn disgrace to dignity. He says there in verse 3, You, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. My glory and the lifter of my head. What does that mean? My glory means that, God, even though I'm running for my life, even though I am running from the throne and someone is trying to overthrow my kingdom, I believe that you will give me the, you will restore to me the glory of the kingdom. You're my glory. And you lift my head when it is bowed down in shame. Now, I believe, or bowed down in distress, I believe that this, uh, this verse, you're the lifter of my head, refers to a very specific verse back in 1 Samuel, or 2 Samuel. So hold your place, but turn to 2 Samuel, look in 2 Samuel 15, where we just read. And hold your place there, because we're going to turn back and forth a little bit. Look in 2 Samuel 15, verse 30. This is David fleeing for his life, leaving Jerusalem. It says, But David went up the ascent of the Mount of Olives, leaving Jerusalem, stepped over the uh, Kidron, the, the brook, Kidron Brook, the Kidron Valley. And, and he's going up the Mount of Olives, and it says, Weeping as he went, barefoot with his head covered. So he's walking downcast. His head is covered. He is in mourning. He is weeping. But he says, God, I believe that you're going to restore my situation. You are the lifter of my head. And so he believed that God would turn his disgrace into dignity. C.H. Spurgeon writes, There is a lifting up of the head by elevation to office, as with Pharaoh's butler. This we trace to the divine appointment. There's a lifting up in honor after shame, in health after sickness, in gladness after sorrow, in restoration after a fall, in victory after a temporary defeat. In all these respects, the Lord is the lifter up of our head. And so there's all sorts of ways that God lifts up our head. But David understood, hey God, you're my shield, you're watching over me, and I have confidence that you're going to lift up my head. Right now, my head is hung down in distress, but you're going to lift it up. You're going to take my, my shame and give me back my dignity. And so David had great confidence that God would do this. Third, David had great confidence that God answers prayer. God answers prayer. What he says in verse 4, I cried aloud to the Lord, and he what? What did he do? Let me just do it again. It wasn't rhetorical. You ready? I cried aloud to the Lord, and he answered me. They said, I prayed, asked God for help, and God helped me. And then look what he says in verse 7. He begins to pray. Arise, O Lord. Arise, O Lord. Save me, O my God. For you strike all my enemies on the, on the cheek. You break the teeth of the wicked. Arise, O Lord. Now, that phrase, we'll talk some more about this in a moment. But that phrase, arise, O Lord, goes back to the Ark of the Covenant in, in, the, in the Torah. And when God would move out with his people, they would cry out, arise, O Lord. And so it, it's, it's basically David saying, God, would you move into action on my behalf? He's asking God to move against 
his enemies. And by the way, I told you as we walk through the Psalms, that's going to show you how the Psalms could help you in your prayer life. Because sometimes we feel like we are praying the same old things, right? Saying the same old things about the same old things. And we try to pray for a couple minutes and we lose our thoughts and we get distracted. And we just find, a really, find it really difficult to pray for extended periods of time. Well, try using the words of Psalm 3 in your, in your prayer life. In other words, if there are some things that are happening in your life or in your nation that are desperate, just use the words of, of David here. Something like this. Arise, O Lord, would you work in this crazy political process? Through the elections, through the courts, through the Congress, would you work so that our nation would begin to protect unborn human life? Arise, O Lord, we need your help because it's a mess out there, right? Arise, O Lord, or arise, O Lord, my loved one is running from you and they're far from you and they're, they're, they're headed towards a path of destruction. God, would you rise up and, and intersect their life and, and show them their need for you and, 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 and help them to see that they need to, to run to you instead of away from you. Arise, O Lord. So you can use the words of the Psalms as your own prayer language and you can find yourselves praying with fervency as you're asking God, God, not just God bless so-and-so, but God, arise. Would you move into action? We need you desperately. We really encourage you to use the Psalms. Use the words of the Psalms in your own prayer life. You'd be surprised how it can help you pray for longer periods of time. So, God answers prayer. He asks God to arise, and, and we'll talk about the conclusion in a moment, but God rose up and helped David in this moment. God answers prayer, and David had a firm conviction, even in the midst of Hopelessness from a human perspective. It looked hopeless, but he knew that God answered prayer. He was confident. Next, he had this confidence. I am in God's hands. I am in God's hands. Look in verse 5. Oh, I love verse 5. I lay down and slept. I woke again for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. That's a big statement. If a thousand folks were surrounding you, wanting to kill you, it'd be hard to say, I'm not afraid. It'd be hard for me. Would it be hard for you? But David had such great confidence in God. Hey, I'm in God's hands. Nothing can touch me unless he allows it. And so even though there are thousands of folks that want to destroy me, at least 20,000 we'll read later on in 2 Samuel, that even though there are, there are 20,000 plus folks that want to overthrow my kingdom, I'm not afraid. My life is in your hands. And oh, to have that kind of faith. Amen? Because we all struggle with fear, different, different things we deal with in life, different things that, that come our direction. Uh, we need to learn that our life is in His hands. God is sovereign. He's on His throne. He's in control. Listen, God is calling the shots. And He never stops calling the shots. He's calling the shots. And your life is in His hands. Confidence, faith. But then, he had this confidence. God is present with me. I'm not going through this alone. God is here. Verse 7. Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God. Now, again, this language comes from Numbers chapter 10, verse 35, where Moses is, is praying. He's asking God to move out on behalf of his people. And it's when the ark would, would be moved. God would, you know, God would, would have his presence, uh, uh, you know, set on the ark, uh, settle on the ark. And so the, the ark of the covenant became 
uh, symbolic of God's presence in their midst. And so when the ark would move, they say, Arise, O Lord, the ark's moving, your presence is moving as well. Well, here's what's interesting. Over in 2 Samuel chapter 15, when David is, is leaving Jerusalem, his priests come and bring the ark with them. And David says something interesting. He says, no, take the ark back to the temple. He said, if God's in this, he'll bring me back to the kingdom. I'll once again be able to come and worship uh, in the temple. But let's don't bring the ark with us. You send the ark back. It's interesting that David did not want this symbol of God's presence with him. Why? Because David knew, ark or no ark, God was with them. He was with them. So he used the same language to speak of God's presence. Arise, O Lord, even though the ark's not there. He had sent the ark back to the temple. And, and here's how Warren Wiersbe says it. He didn't have the ark of God, but he had the God of the ark. So he understood that even though he wasn't at the temple, even though he was running for his life, God was with him. And what a confidence that gave him. And what a confidence that gives you and me when we realize God is with us. Do you remember what Jesus said? I'm with you always, even unto the end of the age. Do you remember when Jesus said, I will never leave you nor forsake you? Remember that? Listen to me. If you are a child of God, if you've embraced Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, God is with you and that's never going to change. Whether you sense his presence, whether you don't sense his presence, God is with you. And that ought to give you confidence. You will, listen, you will never walk through anything alone. Anything. Even if everyone else in your life turns their back to you, God is with you. And so David has his confidence in the presence of God. I've, this week I've been with two ladies who uh, are on hospice, uh, dying of cancer. Two ladies this week, at their, just right there by their bedside, praying with them. And I was able to say to them, listen to me. Even though you are walking through the valley of the shadow of death, the Lord is with you. He hadn't, he's not leaving you by yourself. He is with you in the midst of this. That's the confidence we have. God is with us. And David had that confidence. And so so he's saying, God is present with me. I don't have the ark of God, but I have the God of the ark. Arise, O Lord, and would you move in this situation? And so we see the context of this psalm, the complaint of David, the confidence of David. But, but fourth, I want you just to think with me for a moment about the conclusion of the matter. What happened? David's running for his life. He prays, God, would you work? Would you move? Arise, O Lord. What, what happens? Well, uh, here's the... The summary, God grants David of great victory over his enemies and restores him to his rightful throne. God grants David a great victory over his enemies and restores him to his rightful throne. When you get a chance, read chapters 15 through 18. You can read that entire story. As a matter of fact, the story of Absalom's demise is really interesting. Uh, after David's troops began to defeat Absalom's troops, Absalom is running for his life, and he had this really full head of hair. Do you remember the story? And he, and he gets caught in a tree. Uh, his hair gets caught in a tree, and the mule keeps going, and he's just hanging there. Can you imagine that? And Joab walks up and throws three javelins into his heart and kills him. And Absalom, his rebellion, dies with him. God moved with power in a dramatic way 
to give David a a victory and give him his kingdom back. That's the conclusion of the matter. So God was faithful to David in this situation. and, And God threw down the evil rebellion of his son Absalom. So it's a really interesting story. I hope you'll read the whole thing when you get a chance. 2 Samuel chapters 15 through 18. Uh, actually, back up to chapters you know, 14 to kind of get the context of that whole story. It was a sad moment in David's life, a, a moment that marked his life. But God protected David. God watched over David, and God gave David victory. Okay, everybody take a deep breath. Okay, that was just introduction. Okay, now we're going to get to the good stuff. You ready? I'm just kidding. I'm uh, kind of. Okay, let's get to the good stuff. Let me, let me give you some closing thoughts about this uh, psalm that hopefully uh, you can take with you and, and really chew on uh, this week. Now, again, if you have a question as we're going through all of this, just jot your question down and I'll try to answer your question as soon as we're done tonight. But let me just give you some closing thoughts about Psalm 3. Some ways to think about this psalm. First of all, this psalm has something to say about warfare. This psalm has something to say about warfare. Because you could read this psalm and think, well, that's David. I've never been in a war before. I've never had people chasing me with javelins and, and bows and arrows. I've never, I've never been in a, a, a physical uh, altercation where someone's trying to take my life. And so maybe this psalm doesn't really apply to me. Well, you couldn't be more wrong. This psalm absolutely applies to you because whether you're in a physical altercation with, with enemies that you can see or not, you are involved in warfare, like it or not. You are. I like this quote from P.C. Craigie. He writes, In the New Testament, the terminology of battle and war is consistently transformed into the language of spiritual warfare and the struggle against evil. So whether you've ever been in a physical conflict or not, you are in a spiritual conflict, like it or not. Every one of you. Can I remind you of some things tonight? Satan is a roaring lion seeking those whom he can devour. The thief comes to steal and kill and destroy. Satan hates you. He hates your marriage. He despises your kids. He wants to destroy your family. He hates your pastor. He hates your church. He is out to destroy. He's a roaring lion. And like it or not, spiritual warfare is an ever-present reality in our lives. So we got to know what it means to have confidence in the battle, right? we got to know what it means to stand strong when you feel like you are outnumbered by the enemy. There, is some, there are some things we can learn from Psalm 3 about warfare. Craigie goes on to say, Such a transformation, using warfare language to speak of our spiritual warfare, it's not new in the, in the New Testament. It is anticipated in this and many other Psalms, Psalm 3. The particular experience of the kings of Israel and Judah was adapted for use in the spiritual experience of all God's people. The editors of the Psalter, the ones that put all the Psalms together in the certain order that they are in, the editors of the Psalter, either in editorial wisdom or following an established practice, place this Psalm, Psalm 3, next to Psalm 4. The former for use in the morning, the latter for the evening. Because notice what it says there in verse 5. I lay down and slept. I woke again for the Lord sustained me. And so the, the editors of the Psalter intended for you to think about this Psalm first thing in the morning. 
And we know that because the next psalm speaks of the evening. Look what it says over in Psalm 4. We'll get to this a little bit later on. Look what it says in uh, verse 8. In peace I will both lie down and sleep, for you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. So there's a psalm for when you wake up in the morning. There's a psalm for when you get ready to go to bed at night. Your confidence in God's presence in your life. And, and what Craigie is saying here is this, that the, the, the editor of the Psalter put those two together so that you have some thoughts about confidence in God first thing in the morning, and you're thinking about your relationship with God last thing in the evening. They're put together for that reason. And so this battle imagery is intended to help us to think through our spiritual battles. So we have confidence in God no matter what we find ourselves going through. So the psalm has something to say about warfare. And here's what it has to say to you and to me. Listen to me. Greater is he that is in me than he who is in the world. David was surrounded by enemies, but guess what? He had God on his side. That was enough. And Satan is a roaring lion. Satan and his demons want to destroy you. But God is greater than Satan. He's more powerful than than the demonic realm. He gets the ultimate victory. And if we will be vigilant and stand strong in the Lord, stay close to Jesus, he will give us daily victories over the enemy. But if we try to ignore abiding in Christ and try to live life in our own strength, we are a target for the enemy. Amen? But we have confidence Greater is he that is in me than he that is in the world. So when you read this this warfare language, don't think, well, this isn't for me. Psalm 3 is absolutely for you. This is a great psalm to think about spiritual warfare. A great psalm to think about standing strong in the Lord. A great psalm to think about God's greatness over your enemy. So the psalm has something to say about warfare. Secondly, this psalm has something to say about mornings. (laughs) I just told you that. It's a psalm for the morning. Matter of fact, your, your Bible may have, just above the, the third psalm, may have something like a morning prayer of trust in God. Does your, say that? Does your Bible say that? You have that? Anybody else have that? It says morning prayer of trust in God. And then Psalm 4 says the evening prayer of trust in God. Does your say that? Say evening prayer of trust in God. Does it say that? Right before Psalm 4. So, so, yeah, a lot of times the Bible will put that little designation above Psalm 3 and 4. Morning prayer, uh, evening prayer. And and notice here that this prayer, this psalm, is in the context of the morning. He says there in verse 5, I lay down and slept. I woke again for the Lord sustained me. So he says, I'm I'm awake now because God watched over me. God sustained my life. And he's praising God. He's praying, listen, first thing in the morning. He had just woken up. Now listen, is there anything we can learn from that? Does God want us to think about him first thing in the morning? I would submit to you that he does. And we see this all throughout the Psalter. We see David's focus on the mornings. For example, look over in chapter 5, verse 3. O Lord, in the morning you hear my voice. In the morning I prepare sacrifice for you and watch. First thing in the morning, David is worshiping. Look over in Psalm 57 with me. Psalm 57. 
verse 7. My heart is steadfast, O God. My heart is steadfast. I will sing and make melody. Awake, my glory. Awake, O harp and lyre. I will awake the dawn. So he's singing exuberant praise as the sun is coming up. When the sun comes up, I will awake the dawn. He was a morning person. Now, he probably had some coffee by now before he starts singing, but he's a morning person. Now look over in uh, chapter 59. Chapter 59, verse 16. David says, I will sing of your strength. I will sing aloud of your steadfast love. When? In the morning. So David was a man after God's own heart. He was a passionate worshiper. And notice the focus on on David's worship, David's prayer, David's praise, first thing in the the morning. Spiritually speaking, David was a morning person. <laughs> Spiritually speaking, David was a morning person. And this is a pattern we see all throughout the Bible. Abraham arose early in the morning, Genesis 19, chapter 21. So did Moses, Exodus 24 and 34. Joshua, Joshua 3 and 6 and 7 and 8. Samuel, 1 Samuel 15. Job, Job 1, 5. But the most important example of rising up early to commune with the Father, is our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. As a matter of fact, turn with me to Mark, the Gospel according to Mark, chapter 1. Mark, chapter 1. This verse always challenges me. Mark, chapter 1, verse 35. The Bible says, rising very early in the morning, while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place, and there he prayed. Rising very early in the morning, while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place, and there he prayed. So, if you want to engage God in the morning, praise Him, lift up prayers to Him, you're in good company. You're following the example of Jesus Christ himself. That's a pretty good example to follow, right? And so here's my my encouragement, and trust me, I'm working on this as well. i got four kids, and sometimes it is hard to get out of bed in the morning, all right? Try giving God the early part of your day and see if it doesn't make a difference in the rest of your day. I can guarantee you it will. If you'll consistently give God the early part of your day, get your focus right, it will really transform the remainder of your day. And so you can't, you can't get away from Psalm 3. It's a prayer, a desperate prayer, first thing in the morning. This psalm has something to say about mornings. Uh, my, my preference, when things are going really great for me, when, I, you know, I, when my schedule's right and there's no sick kids and you know, all that, I'm getting out of bed on time, all that, uh, what I love to do is I love to get up, fix a cup of coffee, and I love to be up before the rest of the house is up because once the rest of the house is up, yeah, it's harder. I'll just say it like, it's harder. 
But if I can't get up for the rest of the house is up and I fix a cup of coffee, I'm not talking about every morning. Sometimes it doesn't work out that way. But I, I get my cup of coffee and I sit at my dining room table and it's quiet and it's still. And it's just you and Jesus reading his word. I mean, there's just nothing like it. Those are my, the favorite parts of my day, the favorite parts of my week. Those, those moments alone with God sustain me, transform me, uh, encourage me. Give me stronger faith. Uh, it, it's, I just can't overstate how, how vital it is that we follow David's example. And we give God our mornings. And so, this psalm has something to say about mornings. Whether you're a morning person or not, try to be a morning person, spiritually speaking, and see if it doesn't make a difference. Third, this psalm has something to say about salvation. This psalm has something to say about salvation. Notice the last verse in Psalm 3. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be on your people. Say law. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Now in the context, he's talking about deliverance from enemies. Uh, but the word salvation is, is really an interesting word. It's, it's basically where you get the word Joshua from. Joshua is a name that means God saves, and the same root is used here to speak of salvation. And Jesus' name is, is, is basically uh, God saves. It's the form of Joshua, God saves. So the word, the word there translated salvation, salvation belongs to the Lord, is, is the word that just means God saves. And this word, this idea, is applied to dramatic deliverance from enemies, it's also applied to dramatic deliverance from our sin. It's the same idea, being saved, being delivered, being set free, uh, being, being saved from destruction. It's the same word, the same word grouping is used of being saved from sin. Jesus saves. That's what his, God saves. That's what the word Jesus means. And Jesus came to save us, it says in Matthew, from our sins. And so when you think about salvation... You see the salvation that God provides for David. Physical salvation, deliverance from enemies. Would you just thank God for the salvation he gives you? Deliverance from sin and self and Satan. Because the same word is used. Jonah used this verse, by the way. Do you remember the story of Jonah? Jonah ran from God. He said, go to Nineveh. Jonah said, I'm not interested. So he he was headed to uh, Tarshish and and God sent a great storm. Uh, he knew it was because of him. He told the sailors it was his fault. They threw him into the water. God prepared a great fish. And the fish swallowed Jonah. And look what it says over in Jonah. F- find it with me very quickly. Jonah chapter 2. Jo- uh, Jonah chapter 2. Look what it says in verse 9. He's in the fish. He's crying out. He's praying to God. Look what he says. But with the voice of thanksgiving, will sac- uh, but I with the voice of thanksgiving will sacrifice to you what I vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Direct quote from Psalm 3. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And so he's, he's praying there about deliverance ultimately from a fish. So whether you're talking about deliverance from enemies or deliverance from destruction, deliverance from death, or deliverance from your sin, God is the one who saves. Amen? 
So every time you see God saving folks in whatever way in the Psalms or throughout the Bible, it should be a, a reminder to you that God delivered you too through His Son, Jesus Christ. J.M. Boyce writes it like this. I love this quote. Salvation is of the Lord. But if that is true, if God has saved you in this great matter of salvation, why should you tremble before the lesser physical dangers of this life? However imposing and frightful they may seem, you should triumph by faith in God as David did. So if you can trust God in the area of salvation, the most important issue, you can trust Him in lesser issues as well. Amen? So this psalm has something to say about salvation. But here's the last thing. Now, I'm going out on a limb on this one, but Spurgeon made mention of it, so I'm in safe territory, okay? Because Spurgeon said it. This psalm reminds us of another king. This psalm reminds us of another king. Spurgeon made mention of the fact that David is a type of Christ. He's the first king in the lineage that would lead to the king of kings, Jesus Christ. So he's a type or symbol, a pattern of Christ, if you will. And, and thinking of David from that perspective, he made some interesting parallels to this story. For example, turn over to 2 Samuel chapter 15. 2 Samuel chapter 15. Look at verse 23. David is leaving Jerusalem. Enemies are hot on his heels. It says, All the land wept aloud as all the people passed by, and the king crossed the brook Kidron, and all the people passed on toward the wilderness. Now the brook Kidron is the brook that runs between the Temple Mount and the Mount of Olives. And, and there's this brook there, and it says, David stepped over that brook as he was fleeing Jerusalem. And look what it says in verse 30. After he crosses the brook, David went up the ascent of the Mount of Olives, weeping as he went. So David, running from enemies, crosses the brook of Kidron, leaving Jerusalem, goes up the Mount of Olives. Now guess who took that exact same route on the night before he was crucified? Jesus Christ. Enemies hot on his heels. He went with his disciples. He crossed the Kidron brook. He went up on the Mount of Olives where the Garden of Gethsemane is. There in that garden he prayed, and that's where he was betrayed. That's where he was arrested. And so Spurgeon made mention of the fact that, that Jesus followed the same route, the same route that David did. And then look back over in Psalm 3. If you're thinking about Spurgeon as a type of Christ, I mean, uh, Spurgeon, uh, thinking about David as a type of Christ, look what he says back in Psalm 3, verse 5. I lay down and slept. I woke again for the Lord sustained me. Spurgeon says, hey, Jesus slept the sleep of death. He died on the cross, but he did not stay dead. The Lord, God the Father, awoke him. He was risen from the dead. And so you can see some patterns there that, that, that Jesus followed from Psalm so this psalm, I'm not saying it's a, a messianic psalm. We're going to get to some messianic psalms, which are very clear messianic psalms. But I am saying that as you think about a king, and you think about the king of kings, you think about the, the route David went, you think about David sleeping and awaking, there are some things here that remind us about Jesus. And that's okay, that we can think about this chapter and then think about Jesus and what he did for us. So maybe when you read Psalm 3 from now on, you think about David and Absalom and the Brook of Kidron and the Mount of Olives. Maybe you'll think about Jesus and what he did for you. This psalm reminds us of another king.